The inspired word of God says this, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray before we continue to meditate on this psalm. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for how you reveal your glory in it. We thank you how you reveal our interest in Christ through Scripture, how you show us what you have done on our behalf, and how you condescend to use us as instruments in your hand to make your glory known. Lord, we pray that we would be like uh, the one who was healed of leprosy that we heard from Luke 17. That as we consider what great things you have done for us, not because we deserve them, but because you are a God of overflowing mercy and compassion and kindness and grace, we pray that today our hearts would experience fresh gratitude, a fresh joy, a sense of awe and wonder at what you've done, and that our awe and wonder, that our gratitude would overflow in exuberant praise of you and opening our mouths and sharing your good news of the gospel with our neighbors and indeed to the very nations. Father, would you use Psalm 138 in our lives as we continue to think about it in these next few moments? Would your Holy Spirit work in us and show us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ? And would you compel us to the great mission to which you have called us as your blood-bought, spirit-indwelt church? Father, move in this time, we would pray, and do great things in us and among us and through us. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we ask, amen. It was Thanksgiving of 1993. Tracy Otler was a young single mother. She had a three-year-old. She was pregnant with another child. The father was nowhere to be found. She did not have family around. She was living in a dingy apartment in a rundown neighborhood, living on welfare, trying to work her way through nursing school to, to better her situation. And unlike many who were with family celebrating and had lots of good food prepared before them and uh, probably pumpkin pie and turkey, she planned on just opening up a can of soup and having it with her three-year-old. It wasn't something to give a whole lot of thanks about. And much to her surprise, a little before lunchtime, she heard a knocking on her door. She was wondering who in the world would come and knock on my door at Thanksgiving. And as she goes and opens the door, she sees it's very obviously a delivery driver from a local restaurant. And he says, here, I've brought some food for you. And she says, well, I didn't order any food. He said, is your name Tracy Otler? And she said, well, yes, that's my name, but I didn't order any food. He said, well, someone thought of you, and someone wanted you to be able to celebrate Thanksgiving. And she couldn't imagine who it is. She said, who, who would do such a thing? And he said, they wanted to remain anonymous, and all they did was send a very a short message, have a happy Thanksgiving. She couldn't believe it. She took the food, and for lunch, her and her son feasted. As she reflected back on that day, she said multiple times, her heart so overwhelmed with gratitude that she wept at such an unexpected and really an undeserved kindness. And it actually became a watershed moment in her life. As she experienced that type of gratitude, it set her on a course, and she thought, you know, I want to live a life in such a way that I would show kindness to people, unexpected, undeserved, for people who are not looking for it that they might experience the same sort of gratitude that I have experienced. Now, that's just in the normal realm of things, but it reminds us that gratitude 
can be transformative. And how much more so for those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ, for those of us who make the profession that we were so out of sorts with God that the only thing we deserved from God was his just, white-hot wrath, that we had no expectation of kindness from God, but only a certain expectation of judgment, and yet God, in the overflow of his mercy, sent his very best in sending his only son to become incarnate and to live in our stead, to obey the law that we cannot keep that we celebrated in worship, to go and die an atoning death on the cross, to raise powerfully from the dead, and to offer himself and all the benefits of being united to him freely to us. We are a people whose life should overflow with gratitude for God's mercy and kindness. And not just the moment we come to conscious faith in Jesus, not just at big moments like uh, taking the Lord's Supper or occasional moments where it hits us, but recognizing that when God has redeemed us, he's brought us into intimate relationship with himself, that we are united to Christ like a husband and bride together who are one in the physical act of marriage. Christ indwells us. We indwell him. He's walking with us, loving us. He's constantly intercessing for us. Daily, as Christians, we have reason for unbridled gratitude, weeping at the praise of mercy found. And there's something that happens when we cultivate that, when we meditate on that, when we feast on that, when we let that fill our lives. Psalm 138 says there's a reverberation that happens. It it doesn't stay where it is, but that it goes outward to our neighbors, and as Psalm 138 is going to say, even to the nations. There was a sister PCA church who had a slogan for their church a number of years ago. I don't think it still is. And they said this, what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And that's the logic of Psalm 138. If gratitude for God's saving mercy goes deep into your heart, it will go wide to the world And so I've titled our sermon today, Grow a Gratitude That Goes Global. Grow a Gratitude That Goes Global. And I just want to walk you in three steps through Psalm 138 and just unpack these eight verses. There's a three-step movement. In verses 1 to 3, I'm going to encourage you to develop wholehearted gratitude. If you're taking notes, that's going to be our first outline point. Develop wholehearted gratitude gratitude. And then Psalm 38, 138 is going to give us two fruits of that. If we develop wholehearted gratitude, the first fruit will be found in verses 4 to 6, which is to declare your gratitude globally. Declare your gratitude globally. A third fruit, or a second fruit, I should say, and our third point will be found in verses 7 through 8. Depend on the God to whom you are grateful, to depend on the God to whom you are grateful. And that second fruit will enable the, sec- or the first fruit, which is to declare your gratitude globally. So there's a wonderful interconnection that we're going to see as we explore the psalm. So let's think about our first point, to develop wholehearted gratitude. Did you notice the commitment of the psalmist in verse 1? Look at it with me. I will give you thanks, O Lord, because I have to. I'll give you thanks, O Lord, with a half of a heart. I'll give you thanks, O Lord, perfunctory. It doesn't say that. It says, I will give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, with everything that I am. My wife and I watch a television show called Blue Bloods. I'm not sure if any of you are fans of that. It follows a a New York crime, uh, not crime, they fight crime. Uh, They're police officers. Tom Selleck's the main character. They're a very Catholic family. Uh, The sons are police officers. The main character is the police chief. The daughter's the DA. And they're constantly fighting crime. And if you watch Blue Bloods, and I've watched, I think, every episode. We're on the 13th season. It's something we stream sometimes. There's something that happens every single episode. You're always waiting for it. 
at some point there's going to be a family dinner. And at the family dinner, the Reagan family, not these Reagans, but that Reagan family, they hash things out, they argue, they discuss, but at the beginning of that meal, because they are Catholics, they always stop and pray a prayer. And even some of the most, uh, we might say, unbelieving of the family members, those who clearly do not follow even their Catholic faith, will sometimes lead this prayer, and it's always the same prayer. It says, Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, that's not a bad prayer, (laughs) but it's very clear it's just perfunctory. It's just ritual. It's just something they do because they're Catholic Friends, this is not perfunctory gratitude that we see in verse 1. And it's not perfunctory gratitude that the Christian is to give. This is whole soul. This is exuberant. This is the kind of gratitude that fills your heart and explodes into song. Because notice, he says, I'll give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Things we're really excited about, we put to art to song, to poetry, to paint. And notice that it's before the gods. The word God here is Elohim in Hebrew, sometimes referring to the true God. It's a plural word, but it's a plural of majesty because the true God is glorious. Sometimes it refers to the pagan gods, the gods of the nations who aren't really gods, but just idols. And that looks like how it's translated here, but it can also refer to Rulers, human rulers, or angels? Now, I would suggest that we might understand it not to refer to gods, but actually human rulers in verse 1. Because if you notice in verse 4 and 5, the one among whom King David is going to be given thanks is the kings of the earth, the great rulers that he would encounter in his realm. And so I think we should understand that it's before the rulers of the earth, before the great ones of the earth, A God whose majesty is so great that even the greatest of the earth must hear about this God. Regardless, whether it is actually gods or rulers, it's very clear that this kind of gratitude can't be kept in a closet. It's public. It's the kind of gratitude that you tell things about. It's the kind of things you can't keep to yourself. I mean, we see that dynamic even in social media. I mean, why do people post on the hamburger they had on social media? Because then it was great, and they want to share it. There's a, a tendency to want to share that which you enjoy. And when we enjoy God with our whole heart, it doesn't stay inside. It goes forward. It goes public. So let's consider the source of this gratitude. Look at verse 2. I bow down towards your holy temple, and he's probably at the temple as he's doing this, and I give thanks to your name. Now, why is he giving thanks? Why is he expressing gratitude? Look at the word for in verse 2. That's explaining why he's giving thanks. He says, for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The word is chased in Hebrew. It's covenant love. It's loyal love. God has been faithful to him. God has kept his promises to him. He's seen him deliver him. He's seen him answer prayers, as we're going to see, because he's a covenant-keeping God. He's a God who's bound himself to his people. In fact, why does he demonstrate steadfast love and thankfulness? I'm sorry, faithfulness. We'll look at the second part, or the third part, the final part of verse 2. Again, we hear a a for, an explanatory word. What's, What's behind God's faithfulness to his people He says, for you have exalted above all things your name in your word. It's God's commitment to his own glory. It's God's commitment to his own name. It's God's delight in being God. That might sound like a threat to us. If God is for God primarily, if he's after exalting his name, that might seem like it's not good for us. But the wonder of the gospel is that God condescends to make his glory bound in doing good to his people. His name is demonstrated by his covenant faithfulness to his people. And so it's the best of all possible worlds where God gets the glory and those of us who trust him as redeemer get the good. Maybe you can illustrate it in the difference between service in Australia versus America. Uh, We lived in Sydney, Australia for three and a half years. I'll just give you a tip. If you go visit Sydney or anywhere in Australia, you don't have to tip in the restaurants. Why? 
Well, because Australians think, well, it's better if you just pay the, the waitress or the waiter a living wage. Let's give them 15, 20 bucks an hour and they don't have to work for tips. That sounds great. And maybe that's good for the waitress or the waiter, but it's terrible for those who are customers because the service is subpar. When the waiter or the waitress is not working and being attentive to you, making sure you're taken care of well because they're not working for a tip, trust me, you will notice the difference in service. I never thought I'd see a day where I thought, man, if I could just have a waiter or a waitress that was working for a tip, maybe I could get their attention. Maybe they'd actually be polite to me. Many times we would say, oh, you, you delivered the wrong thing. And they're like, so? <laughs> I mean, pretty much that. Try to flag them down. Hey, I need something. And they might be bothered to come back to you. What a difference to go to anywhere, not just America. It's not an America versus Australia thing. But if you go to anywhere that works for tip, there's tips. There's a noticeable difference in the level of attentiveness, kindness, service. You might think, well, well that server just wants a good tip. Well, yes. <laughs> But that's to my benefit that they're seeking after their own good because they give me attentive care. Now, obviously, the analogy breaks down in some ways to God because God is not selfish. He is the uncreated one. He's the triune God, the God of love and glory, a God who's self-giving. And yet, as he pursues his glory, it's for our good. We can bank on his faithfulness because the word of God says he's bound up the exaltation of his name in showing good to his people. And look at the specific ways this has come to shape in the psalmist's life in verse 3. On the day I called, and the idea is there's trouble around. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. What an amazing thing. We're going to see in verse 6 that this God is high and holy. This is the God who does all things after the counsel of his will, who above all things exalts his name and his word, and yet notice how attentive he is to his people. On the day I called, not maybe I'll get back to you, maybe not. Oh, I can't be bothered right now. I'm sorry, that's an Aussie saying. I still have Aussie lingo. Can't be bothered is an Aussie saying. I'll get back to you maybe. The place I'm staying uh, with my in-laws, the internet was out for three weeks. No internet at home for three weeks. We call the people, oh yeah, I'll be there you know, sometime. We waited three weeks to get our internet fixed. God is not like that to his people. It's not uncertain. He's not delayed. But on the day God's people call, he answers. Now, does that mean he always changes the circumstances? Well, think about the life of David, the author of the psalm. Certainly not. Many times, David had to wait on the change in his circumstances, if you will. You think about Saul hunting him down or his own son, Absalom, hunting him down. David endured many things, sometimes in part because of his own sin when it comes to Absalom. But notice it's not just the answer in terms of a change of circumstances. Notice the last part of verse 3. Now, interestingly, I should tell you the way Hebrew poetry works, because this is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not about rhyming, but using something called parallelism. So it will often make a statement, and then it will give a parallel statement in the second part of the verse that gives further explanation to the first part. So in verse 3, when he says, On the day I called, you answered me, the second part is the form that answer took. And again, it wasn't just change of circumstances. He says, my strength of soul, you increased. In fact, the circumstances may not have changed at all. And yet, on the very day he called upon him, God intervened. God gave him strength, perhaps to endure the circumstance. Maybe sometimes to change it, but at least he didn't do nothing. He responded. My question before you is, could Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, could he say that Psalm 138.3 was true of him? Because that's the one instance we read of in the Gospels where Jesus asked for something from his Father, and his Father did not give him the specific thing he asked. Jesus asked as he looked at the cross, and as he was about to experience literally hell on the cross, not the physical suffering that was so great, but the wrath 
of the Father against all the sins of all those who would ever trust him as Savior. He was about to experience that, and he said, Father, if there's any way this can pass, let it pass. The only time the Father said no to Jesus. But was Psalm 138.3 true of him? And I would say yes, because he said no to the change of circumstance, but the second part of verse 3 was gloriously true My strength of soul, you increased. You can read in Luke 22 that as Jesus was pouring his heart out to his father at the end of that prayer, the angels came and ministered to him and gave Jesus the fortitude, the strength to go to the cross that he might be the redeemer for you and all those who trust in him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I would say that Psalm 138.3 was gloriously true. And believer, if you are united to Christ by faith, if you are depending on Jesus alone as your Savior, there will never be a moment in your life, not in the deepest, darkest moments of your life, where Psalm 138.3 will not be true of you. Where when you call, he will not answer, where he will not strengthen your soul. In fact, if you think about the last couple of years of your life, there's never been a moment where Psalm 138.3 was not true. Because God is glorious in his hesed, his covenant love, his faithfulness to his people. Let's just think for a minute over these last two and a half years, the COVID years. Uh, Maybe we're out of COVID finally, kind of, but maybe not. I hope we are. And maybe COVID has been challenging for you. It's been challenging for our family because of the, the disarray in our mission calling and getting stuck in America for two and a half years when we plan to be here for only a couple of months. Or maybe just regardless of COVID, the last couple of years have been circumstantially incredibly difficult for you. Has Psalm 138.3 been true of you? Has God strengthened you? And I would say yes, that no matter what you've gone through, there's not been a moment in the last two and a half years where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were not for you and with you and strengthening you in your battles against sin. We all struggle with sin daily. And yet, if you're a believer, why do you continue to repent and believe the gospel? Because God has been with you and for you. If we think theologically about the difficult circumstances of our life, and we have to think theologically, we can't just look with the eyes of the flesh. Romans 8.28 is indeed true of his people, that God is indeed working all things to the good of those who love him. And that doesn't mean a change of circumstance because verse 29 says that he's conforming us to the image of Jesus. And sometimes God knows that what we need is to go into the valley in order for us to die to self and trust in Christ. Many times God has delivered you from sickness, death, and difficulty over these last two and a half years both in ways known and unknown to you. Some of you know of those ways. I sat with a dear brother of mine over lunch a couple of days ago, and we were recounting how about a year and a half ago, his seven-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, and the doctor said she has 40% chance to live. Today, she's healthy. She's cancer-free and seems to be that it looks like it will remain that way, and we were just amazed at God's kindness. Maybe you've experienced something like that, But nonetheless, if you're clinging to Jesus, maybe just by a thread, it's because Psalm 138.3 is true of you. If you're here today, and maybe it hurts to even get out of bed. Maybe you're struggling with depression, discouragement. You're wrestling with sorrow. You don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. You're struggling with anxiety and fear. And yet, just by a thread, you're still clinging to Jesus And if it is, it's because God is making Psalm 138.3 true in your life that your strength of soul, he's increasing. Because, friends, if you cling to Jesus, if you have him as your Savior, you have everything. Everything. Friends, if it weren't that Psalm 138.3 is true, you would have abandoned Jesus Christ long ago. The last couple of years, I've been sad to see some of my friends who I thought were strong in the faith walk away from Christianity altogether. I've been sad to see key Christian leaders walk away from the faith altogether. There's a a pastor, speaker, writer who I used many of his books to disciple people in India and Australia because they were so clear and and easy and gospel-centered and wise, and this brother or professing brother walked away from the faith a couple years ago. Why have you not walked away from the faith? 
Why have you not become an apostate? Why have you no longer said, I don't believe that. I'm not going to trust in Jesus. It's a bunch of junk. It's because God in his mercy is making Psalm 138.3. He's strengthening your soul to hold to Christ, even if it just feels like by a thread. And so, friends, when we think theologically about our life and the circumstances, we have every reason to join the psalmist in whole-souled gratitude for his faithfulness and his mercy And not just to be thankful in this moment as you're hearing this text, but to begin to cultivate that, to make it your intention to meditate much on God's good providence towards you, to think much about scripturally, how do I view my difficulties and circumstances? What is God up to in the midst of that? What does he promise me as his people? And to continue to daily deepen that sense of God's kindness and goodness and give thanks. Now, at the deepest level, whole-souled gratitude is an in and of itself because our chief end is to worship God. And a big part of that worship is expressing our gratitude for who he is, what he's done, and his mercy. But it also has an overflow. It has a fruit in in our lives. And the second of those is in our second point, that this gratitude leads to a desire for God's glorious gospel faithfulness to be celebrated around the globe And so we're urged by the psalm to declare your gratitude globally. That's our second point. Notice what the psalmist expects, what King David expects in verse 4 and 5. He says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. He envisions the kings and the nations that they represent coming to God and beginning to worship the God of Israel, the God that is the only redeemer of mankind. It's not just a perfunctory, oh yeah, we'll worship your God too, like a Hindu might add Jesus to the pantheon of gods they worship. Notice it's the same sort of thanksgiving. It's echoed what the David experienced. Notice David had a thanksgiving in verse 1 that led to a song. And David says these people are going to be so whole-souled, these kings of the earth, that in verse 4 they'll give thanks, and in verse 5 they will sing of the ways of the Lord because we sing about that which we cherish and believe and think is most important to us. Ladies, think about when you're most honored by a man you're dating or if you're married, your spouse. Is it when they merely say, honey, I love you, you're great. Or is it when they maybe play you a song or write you a song or write a poem and they express it poetically? And if they do that, then you're like, whoa, this, this guy really likes me. It's really something. His, his enthusiasm is more that's not just saying these things. Well, here we have a song as of an expression of a whole-souled gratitude for God. The question is Why? What is the jump from verses 1 to 3 to 4 and 5 where there's this personal sense of God's gratitude and then it overflows to the nations? Why is that? Well, I think when David experienced God's covenant mercies in his life, he was reminded of the big covenant promise of Scripture, the promise made to the father of the Jewish people, to Abraham, that God would bless the nations through Abraham, that God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants not just to show good to them, but through them to show blessing to all the tribes and the families of the earth. I think when David experienced God's mercy and he grew in his love for God, he began to love the things that his God loved. And what does God love? God loves his glory reflected in the salvation of all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth coming into this covenant promise made with Abraham. And when David's love exploded for God and gratitude, his heart was for what God's heart was for. He loved what God loved. And notice, it's love for God's glory. That's what David envisions the kings of the earth, those who are going to hear the good news of the gospel, the motivation for them, giving thanks and singing. Look at the end of verse 5. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And again, notice our little explanatory word for. For great is the glory of the Lord. Great is the glory of the Lord. Of the Lord. 
for David and for all the kings who will hear and give thanks. It's the glory of this God that leads them to do so. It's not just the benefits that they receive. The benefits that they receive drive them to the one who gives them, and they see his glory, and they worship, and they explode in gratitude, and they praise him, and they delight in him. I had a church history professor who was a very Calvinistic when I had him as a professor. He loved the sovereignty of God, and he would teach church history in such a way to highlight the sinfulness of man and the sovereignty of God and salvation. But he said that when he was a student in seminary, he was, if you know the terms, an Arminian. There's Calvinists and there's Arminians. There's those who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in everything, even in the human decisions that are made for Christ. And there are those who limit God's sovereignty to everything but human decisions. That's Arminians. And my professor, when he was looking at the Protestant modern missionary movement and seeing guys like William Carey and David Brainerd and uh, Adoniram Judson and Ann Judson and all these people who went out and sacrificed everything for the gospel, he was like, why would these people who are theologically Calvinist who believed in the sovereignty of God, why were they the leaders of the Protestant missionary movement? That doesn't make sense to me. It seems like they wouldn't care. And his professor told him something that changed the course of his theological persuasion. He said they were certainly concerned about the souls of those who were lost and perishing, but their deepest motivation was the glory of God. They went out primarily because they loved God and they wanted to glorify him in glad-hearted obedience. They wanted to see Jesus honored as men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation repented and believed and led them and came to Christ. Friends, where is God's glory seen most? We see it in verse 6. I mean, this psalm is almost reason like a Pauline epistle. There's logic and flow. It's not just emotion. There's a, there's a lot of logic going on in, in this psalm. Great is the glory of the Lord, ends verse 5. Well, where do we see it? And it's in verse 6. Again, our word for explanation. For though the Lord is high, he's exalted, he's great, he's majestic, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. That's a gospel principle we see in the Old and New Testament repeated over and over again. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the lowly. And it's not just lowly in the sense of they're poor, because this is the kings of the earth who are expressing this. It's those who are lowly of heart. It's those who recognize their sin. It's those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God, nothing to put God in their debt, that they only deserve his fierce justice. And yet to those who repent, to those who trust in his offered mercy, he regards the lowly. Those who refuse to repent of their sins, those who are haughty, those who think they don't need God, those who think they can put God in their debt through their own chosen forms of worship or obedience, God knows them from afar. We see God's grace and we see his justice and that's where his glory is seen most clearly. And that's seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's justice and his mercy kiss, where God is so committed to punishing sins that he can't just willy-nilly show mercy to those that he's chosen for salvation. He must make a payment for sin, and he must pour out his wrath on his own son that he might show mercy to those who trust in him. And yet to those who are haughty, those who think they don't need what Jesus has done, and trust in Jesus alone, they are the haughty ones for whom justice is reserved. Friends, God in glorifying himself in the way the gospel works is the greatest of news for sinners like us. Because he binds himself to showing good to us in the gospel. His glory is shown in his commitment to show mercy. And so I have to ask you, friends, is your gratitude for God's saving mercy leading you to share it with the nations? those at your doorstep and those who dwell throughout the earth. I want to show you something neat that's happening in this psalm. Look back at verse 4. It says, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. And then it says, For they have heard the words of your mouth. And I want to suggest that this for, this for they have heard the words of your mouth, should be when. It's a Hebrew conjunction that's very plastic. It can be different things. I don't think they've heard the words of your mouth just yet. Because if you look at the beginning of verse 4, 
It's a future orientation. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks in the future. Verse 5, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. So it seems that they have not heard yet, and I think we should translate it, this expectation, they shall give you thanks, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. When King David makes good on his commitment to give thanks to God publicly, the nations will hear and they will respond, but they haven't done it yet. Why does David have this expectation? Well, God in his providence put Israel in a place where in the ancient Near East, those from this side in the, we'll call it the north, uh, the northeast part, Assyria, and then those in the southwest in Egypt, they couldn't go through the desert to one another, so they had to go. There's no airplanes. There's no flyover places. They had to caravan and go through Israel. So all the people down here, if they wanted to trade, they had to go through Israel. All the people up here, if they wanted to trade with Egypt, they have to go down through Israel. And so all the kings of the earth would indeed be passing. God in his providence put them in such a place that King David would constantly be courting the kings of the nations. And what was King David going to do? He was going to tell them about the God of Israel, about this God of glory and mercy. And I think we have a similar situation here where we live in North Texas in 2022. In God's providence, God is bringing the nations here. I mean, just think about the difference if you've lived here for a few years and what it was like five or ten years ago. Think about how many Indians and Japanese and Chinese and others now fill our schools and our neighborhoods, and that's a good thing. Think about how many people have immigrated here at your workplace. And think about the opportunities To begin to declare your gratitude globally doesn't mean you necessarily have to go across the world. It means you can invite your neighbor over for lunch. You can have coffee with your coworker. Students, you can go sit at the lunch table with the the new kid from India or China and build a relationship. And there's easy access in God's providence for you begin to build a relationship where you can testify and give thanks publicly and share about the God of grace about your Savior Jesus and his love for the nations, his cross and resurrection and gift of salvation for the nations. And so, friends, when we think about declaring our gratitude globally, we can think starting here with those in our workplace and neighborhood and school. That's one of three ways you can do it. There's also a great ministry called ESL, and your mother church, Redeemer, has an ESL program, or my home church down in Plano, Trinity, has an ESL program where there's hundreds of people from the nations. My church is serving, so far in just this semester, 140 people from 14 different nations that are coming weekly to do ESL. Do you have the freedom in your schedule to volunteer and to teach an ESL class and build relationships and love practically those who are coming from the nations and eventually have the opportunity to declare your gratitude for Jesus to them. Or there's RUFI, RUF International, down at UTD, University of Texas at Dallas. We have a pastor in our presbytery, David Billingsley, who's the RUFI um, pastor. I had lunch with him this week. He tells me that every Thursday night he has 30 to 60 students from all over the world, but mostly from India, And he says about, of those 30 to 60 students, about four of them know Jesus. And he has the opportunity to have a meal with them and to share Jesus with them and to build a relationship. And he needs people like you, members, Bible-believing Christians from PCA churches to come and go on Thursday nights and to sit down at a table of international students and just love them and open your mouth and share what Jesus has done for you. So three very easy ways for you to begin to declare your gratitude globally in obedience to this text. And then maybe God is calling some of you to go. Maybe this isn't the first time you thought maybe God is calling you to go to another nation, another people group. And you've kind of been pushing it away, but as you see God's heart for the lost and the nations, maybe you just need to take that next step. Maybe you need to talk to me or someone else, the Bolts, Uh, who are doing missions or talk to mission to the world and go on a short-term trip or look what it would be like to serve and just talk and explore a little bit more. Or maybe God is beginning to move you to be more prayerful, to be more committed to praying for the nations. Maybe God is challenging you to give more generously, to live in such a way that you can devote after the first fruits of your income to this local church to missionaries and missions that are reaching unreached nations. 
Friends, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim to trust in him alone for your salvation, and you have no passion for the Great Commission, no desire to see the nations come into faith and obedience to Jesus, the scripture says you have an obedience problem. Because you can either go, send, or disobey, and those are the only three options. Only two of those are good. But this text reminds us that if you don't have a passion for God's glory among the nations, you actually have something deeper than a disobedience problem. There's something underlying that, and that's that you have a gratitude problem. You're really not grateful for God's mercy towards you and Jesus. It's just perfunctory. You just say it. Because the scriptures say, not just in Psalm 138, but when we love the God of grace, we love others experiencing the God of grace. It overflows. And so if you find in your heart a callousness to what we're talking about today, and and yet you profess faith in Jesus, I call you to repent and ask that God would restore your sense of gratitude and wonder and awe at the gospel of grace. First of all, so that you may rightly worship your God. And secondly, that you may be motivated to begin to declare your gratitude globally. And friends, I have to say, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're a covenant kid, someone who's grown up in a Christian home and you're not sure you believe the gospel, or if you're a a young adult or an older adult and you're here just exploring what Christianity has to offer, I just want to remind you of God's mercy. I want to point you to verse 6, to this God who, though he is high, regards the lowly who welcomes all who repent and believe in his son Jesus, who will cast themselves upon his mercy. If you're not united to Christ by faith, I want you to know that Christ is offering himself to you right now through the proclamation of the word, that Christ wants to show you mercy, that he is willing to give himself to you and all of his benefits if you will but humble yourself. And I urge you not to be haughty in your self-righteousness, not to think that God owes you something, not to think that you can do something to impress God in your religiosity, but to come with nothing in your hands and say, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy And he will delight to give himself to you fully. That's the God we've been celebrating. That's the God whose glory is bound up in welcoming repentant sinners to himself. To love them and to commit himself to you. So that you too can know that Psalm 138.3 will be true of you to the day of your death and beyond. That on the day you call he will answer you and his strength of soul he will increase in you. Now, very briefly, let me just look at the second fruit of this. We'll finish up here. Developing wholehearted gratitude will not only lead you to want to declare your gratitude globally, but it will encourage your dependence on God, which you're going to need if you commit to doing the second step of declaring your gratitude globally. And so the third and final part of the psalm, and I'll I'll do this quickly, verse 7 and 8, our third point, depend on the God to whom you are grateful I want to read verse 7 and 8, and I want you to see both the combination of expectation of trouble and yet confidence that God will be with him in the midst of his trouble. So look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, and isn't that our lives in a broken, fallen world? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, that doesn't sound encouraging, but the second part does. You preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. If David is to do, verse 4 to 6, to declare his gratitude globally, he's going to need God's help. And he's been encouraged that God will provide that help precisely because in the act of gratitude, his faith in Christ is strengthened. And that's the logic of this psalm. Think about Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Isn't that one of our favorite verses when we're struggling with anxiety? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you ever wonder why in that psalm, I'm sorry, that that verse from Philippians, when you're going through hard times, you're anxious, it says offer thanksgiving? Why would we do that? Why offer thanksgiving? Shouldn't you just tell the Lord that you need him? 
why offer thanksgiving? Why is that so key to experiencing the peace that God offers? Well, I believe it's the same dynamic of this psalm. Think about what goes on when you're giving thanks. You're reflecting back on here is what God has done for me in the past. Here is how God has shown his faithfulness to me in the past. And you celebrate that. You experience gratitude for that. What does that do? God is active in my life. God is true to his promises. I bet because he's acted in the past on my behalf, I bet he'll act again because he's promised to do so. And I've tasted afresh and anew the goodness of that. And so the more we develop and cultivate gratitude, the more our faith in Christ will be strengthened to step out and do what he calls us to do. There was a mall I used to visit in India, and it was on the outskirts of Bangalore. Bangalore is a big city, 12 million people. And I used to disciple this young businessman um, who lived or worked near that mall. And so I would meet him you know, once a week, once every other week. We'd study the scriptures or a book together. And I always thought it was funny because it was a multi-layer mall. It looked very much like a Western mall. And there were people who'd clearly come to the village who'd never been in a mall before. And that was kind of an interesting movement in Bangalore. You had all these people coming from the villages into the city. And I would often see these ladies with a sari, it's an Indian dress, and they would be coming to the escalator and they were in terror of getting on an escalator. And they would, they would come up to it and come to the edge and kind of put their foot and they'd see it move and they'd step back. And they would do that a few times. And sometimes I saw literally Indian ladies walk away and not get on the escalator and find another way to get to the next floor, take the stairs, take a, an elevator. There were times I saw people, ladies go on there, and then they would kind of grab on with terror. Why? They weren't sure that it was a safe thing to do. They'd never been on one. I bet most of you, now there's probably a few of you, but most of you, if you go to Stonebriar or whatever your favorite mall of choice, and you get on the escalator, you don't even think twice about it. You don't come up to the escalator with fear, is this thing going to kill me? You're just thinking about the next level and the next shop you're going to. Why? Because you've probably been on an escalator dozens or hundreds of times, and you've seen it deliver you from one floor to the next without incident, so much so that you don't even think about it. Friends, when we cultivate a lifestyle of wholehearted gratitude, our faith in Christ is strengthened so that when we step out to declare his glory globally, when we step out to invite our fellow our student in the lunchroom who's from another country to sit with us, or we invite our neighbor over for coffee or for a meal, or to have lunch with the, the person from another country in our workplace, we can depend that God will be with us. We can trust that God will be with us. We can depend on the God to whom we are grateful because we've seen him over and over and over show up in our lives. Friends, we're going to need that. It's hard. It's awkward to reach out to someone from another country who's in your workplace or neighborhood. Sometimes the language barrier is frustrating. You'll probably make cultural miscues you might not know, and you might be left-handed and shake with your left hand to an Indian person who sees that as terrible because you never use your left hand in Indian culture. It's okay. God will overcome those things. If God is calling you to leave the comforts of this place and go to another country, trust me, it will be hard can you do it in your own strength? No. But you worship and are joined to the one who is Emmanuel, the one who is God with us, the one who's promised us when he gave us this great commission and said, I will be with you always. You are connected to the one who Psalm 138.3 will always be gloriously true of you, that on the day you call, he will answer. He will strengthen your soul. I want to close by telling you about Tracy Otler again. She always wondered for many years, who was the person who thought of me on that Thanksgiving day that really changed the course of my life? And for seven years, she didn't know. And she went on, and she really did. Her life has changed. She finally finished nursing school. Uh, she met a God, uh, I don't know if he's godly, but a good man. Um, and she went on with that intention to bless people. Her and her husband blessed people by fostering a kid and adopting a kid. And they made it their goal to look for opportunities to share with others. One day, this old lady with multiple sclerosis came into her hospital when she was to take care of her. And when Tracy walked in and saw the patient's name was Margo, the name didn't connect, but she looked at her and thought, I know that face. 
and the lady Margot kind of smiled, and they, they realized they knew each other. And Tracy said, where do I know you from? And she goes, oh, I used to live in that apartment back on so-and-so. I was your neighbor. She's like, oh, okay. Nothing connected at the moment. So Tracy's taking care of Margot each of her shifts on those days, and Margot's progressively going downhill where it looks like Margot's not going to live. And a couple of days before her death, Margot takes Tracy's hands, and it's not November. It's not Thanksgiving time. She takes Tracy's hands, and she looks her in the eyes and says, have a happy Thanksgiving. And then right then, Tracy Otler realized, this is the lady that thought of me on that Thanksgiving day. This lady who was lonely, who had multiple sclerosis, who was probably struggling to get by, she thought of me. And that sense of gratitude when she realized the character, the condition of the one who'd been so kind to her, that sense of gratitude deepened even more and continued to push her on a thrust to bless others. When her story was told in a 2014 book, Tracy was just an illustration in this book, her and her husband had made, I think this was 2014, uh, they had made a commitment that on the following year, for a hundred times throughout that year, they would try to show unexpected kindness to someone just to cultivate gratitude in others. When she realized the one who'd set her on that path, it just deepened that gratitude. Well, friends, the one who has shown us the most unexpected, the deepest and greatest undeserved kindness in the world is not anonymous to us. He has revealed himself to us in Holy Scripture. We have been reading and talking about him. He is a God of glory and grace. And when we see this one who is full of glory and grace, when we see how he's committed himself to us, who he will walk with us in the greatest adversity, he promises us resurrection and new heavens and new life. He promises us eternity with himself in his enjoyed presence, which there is nothing better in this entire world. When we look to that one, when we experience gratitude for that, that one, when we have whole soul gratitude, it will overflow and it won't be able to stay just in your heart or in your prayer closet. It'll go to your neighbors and it'll go to the nations. So friends, from Psalm 138, I urge you in humble dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, to grow a gratitude that goes global. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this psalm is so rich. You know better than I know how much it has impacted my own heart over this last year. Father, would you let this psalm just penetrate the hearts of all those who hear my voice today, that ultimately they would recognize it's not just my voice. Lord, they can forget about my voice, but Lord, let them not forget the words of this psalm. May they reverberate in their hearts as they leave this worship service this Lord's Day, may they meditate much on you, the God of glory. May they exult that Psalm 138.3 is gloriously true of them. Father, would you surprise them with gratitude even today? And Father, would you set them on a course where as a church body, as families, as individuals, they would intentionally daily reflect on your goodness and kindness on your good providences toward them, on how much you've promised them in Jesus Christ because of his life, death, and resurrection on their behalf. Father, help them to be a people who cultivate this gratitude. And God, help them let that overflow to the neighbors that in your providence you are bringing from other nations that fill their schools and their neighborhoods and their cafes and their restaurants and their workplaces. Father, make this a community who are quick to reach out to those who are unlike them so that they can earn the opportunity to share who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he can do for all who will look to him in humble faith. Father, do that in this church for your glory and their good. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.